Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine, and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel, and Bill Tate. Doctors, welcome back to the Bayside Studios. How are we? Yeah, great, thanks. Yeah, great going well. Back. Yeah. Yeah, big episode today. This is our we've had a few guests in the past, Rodney, but this this is certainly an anticipated one. So pretty excited to get on with it. You know, but before we do, I just want to address something from the last episode. And I know, you know, from your point of view that you like to park it and step through things and look at them at a granular level and you're really interested in bespoke outcomes. But this time is a buzzword bomb. We're not going to have any of that nonsense, okay? That mumbo-jumbo you can keep to yourself from now on, okay? Oh, good. That's well needed. Waiting for the bespoke, yep. Yeah, it had to come out. You're, so, the, ma- you're the one in management now. You're the one who throws around all the buzzwords. Anyway. No, <laughs> not anymore, unfortunately. That strictly lives in the performance sports world where buzzwords get thrown. Um, really excited episode, oh, exciting episode today. Um, we've had a lot even in the sort of two or three year break between the last episodes and now we've had a lot of people asking about our guest today, uh, who is Josh Dunkley-Smith, who is well known to the rowing world and and probably generally in in sport in Australia as a dual Olympic silver medalist um, in the men's four for rowing, but also uniquely in rowing as a world record holder because there's not a lot of world records in rowing. And um, as we know, Alice, you know, um, boats move in water and on on the, on the uh, open lakes and rivers of the world and, and usually we refer to world's best times because of environmental conditions. Yeah, definitely. And often, you know, you'll have a world championships where all the world records get broken. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, uh, was it um, Carapiro, I think, and then they went back and go, oh, the water's moving. Oh, yeah, there we go, yeah. <laughs> but, of course, the world record we're talking about is the there's the rowing ergometer the stationary ergo which is the the key way that we use to assess athletic performance for an individual off the water in rowing but also pretty common now in, in terms of gyms with crossfit and that sort of stuff so most people are familiar with it and um our guest today we welcome in a moment uh holds currently the the 2k ergo record which is, is probably the most painful ergo probably the most painful world record to break it was one of the. Or I was saying that. It was one <laughs> of the you, most long-standing. What have you done? What have you done at two K? You missed the point of my ribbing. <laughs> I was making fun of you, not the other way around. <laughs> and I think you know. I think in some of the promo leading into this, it's it's worth sort of stating. You know, to do for those that aren't rowers that that like to sit on the ergo uh, in their CrossFit gyms and that sort of stuff, which is it's a fabulous. Uh, cross-training modality, but it means to, to do what this man has achieved means to sit for five and a half minutes at close to 600 watts, which is, when you put it in that sort of context, <laughs> try and do that for 30 seconds. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Well, to put that in context, we do some testing, all-out power ergo testing, and most of our females can't do for one stroke what Josh did for five minutes and 35 mm. seconds yeah but so. we're prom- we you know we're promoting women in sport here rod so yeah no but that's other skills well, <laughs> i know but that just puts it into context yeah, to say how impressive it, it is yeah. it is and quite bizarrely one of the most modest and gentlest human beings that you'll ever meet josh welcome to the uh broso bro show studios tonight thank you very much it's great to be here yeah it's an absolute pleasure to have you mate um, we're going to cover a little bit of ground tonight and we'll, we'll try and I'll try and keep things on track but you know we're really interested to hear we're, we're here to talk a little bit about rowing but a lot about sort of physicality and 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 some of those 
aspects around the, the ergo physical benchmark um, because it, it probably hasn't been spoken a lot about in one sense. I think everyone who's a rower knows about your rowing prowess. But it'd be good to hark back to start off with a little bit. So took up rowing at Geelong College, is that right? Yep. Yep. In year 10. In year 10. So you're a swimmer before that as well? Yeah, I actually... Um did a lot of sports before coming to rowing. Uh, obviously, m- my mum was in the dual Olympian, um, yeah. uh, Barcelona and Atlanta. Um, and so I always grew up watching her training um, and being quite active. I mean, I, I played field hockey, I uh, fenced, which was really fun. I really enjoyed that, something oh, different. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. Um, and for the listeners, what sport did your mum compete in? Uh, she was a sailor, so she was in the 470 class, um, and again at, at Atlanta and Barcelona, um, and missed out on going to the Sydney Olympics by one point in a countback. Um, wow. So that's oh, in, in sailing, you have um, a regatta where you do sort of um, nine to 14 or more races over sort of a, a few days, um, and then obviously it's sort of with like with golf where. For first, you get one point. For second, you get two points. And so at the end of the week, the person with the least points um, is the victor. Um, and so she was on equal points with one other person, but they had more um, higher placings um, compared to, I think, mum, who'd obviously had a few really good ones and then some probably um, a bit back in the field. Um, and so, she, uh, yeah, they went on to win gold in Sydney as well. So... She was part of a really high-performance squad um, mm. with Victor Kovalenko, yeah. um, who's, who's still been, kicking around. He is, yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah, I still I work with with Victor. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the uh, uh, in the coach's boat with Wickthor. Um, <laughs> and really, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's I mean I've I've always I think probably one of the really um, things that people may not know about me is that I've been really lucky to have really good coaches around me for virtually my entire life. Um, Except for the very end at the VIS. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It went downhill a little bit there. Cheap. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually interesting, Josh, because sailing is one of the sports that I work with at the moment and the number of people who go, oh, yeah, that Josh, yeah, that's at his his son um, that remember that quite well and quite fondly. It's, It's really interesting that... Josh I don't see you as Josh the, the rower. <laughs> yeah, you're the kid from the speedboat, which is yeah, 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 fascinating. Yeah. It's a very small, I mean, in rowing, you like to think it's a sort of small community, um, but sailing is definitely very small, tight knit. I mean, not that small, it's worldwide, everyone loves it, but that definitely that performance side of things, it's, and everyone stays at each other's homes when they're overseas, and so it's similar to sort of rowing where you have that really good community that um, supports everyone. So, did you do a lot of travel with your mum? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I was in, again, at both the games. I was smuggled yeah. into both Olympic yeah. villages. There's um, some great photos, isn't there? <laughs> there's, there's one in particular, isn't there, that you reenacted? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, it was mum was holding me as a baby when she was at um, one of her games. And then in, <laughs> uh, was it Rio that we... Uh, I reckon it might have even been London because I think, London, think yeah. I was there, yeah. Well, where I was holding her, carrying her, because <laughs> she's she's um, quite a slight uh, woman. She's fairly tall, but um, I mean, I've since I was ten, I was taller than her, so um, I've always been able to pick her up and carry her around. <laughs> and so, yeah, we reenacted that um, on the at the regatta centre. Yeah, it was really That's funny. <laughs> I've got to say that. <laughs> so, 
obviously, you know, sailing and sailing is a big time commitment sport, particularly regatta wise. Uh, I guess sailing and rowing certainly don't, um, you know, they don't complement one another. What at what point did you decide rowing was going to be a sport that you were going to pursue? Um, I've always sort of said that I really am probably the worst sports person um, because I really don't enjoy watching sport. Um, I really enjoy being in playing sport, being out there and doing doing it. Um, and so I never really had an idea that I would be a sports person, even though, as I said, I, I was always out there playing sport. Um, I really enjoyed hockey. Um, I, I did really enjoy swimming. I was I was always sort of able to get very quickly to a um, like a sort of state rep level um, in uh, in swimming. Like I was doing regionals and was quite good at that. Um, and then in fencing as well. Like I, I was quite. Um, I, I mean, I was talented and developing well. Not like one of the best. There was I fenced in a group with some quite good. Um, some really good athletes um, and again some really good coaches um, but with all these sports sort of it came to a point where I look back where I was um, I could have taken that next step um, and doubled down and sort of started doing a bit more um, extra training and and committing to it sort of where you start um, having to rearrange school around it um, and, and go on to the next level with it um, and for me it was always I shied away from that a little bit I just enjoyed doing it I never really wanted to go on with it and so rowing was the same sort of thing I never really had a plan that I wanted to be a sports person or go to an Olympics um that was something that just sort of happened really naturally and so rowing has a tendency of that because you have to do it at school like eight times a week yeah yeah and so I, I guess the funny story that I always tell is that um so I started in year 10 most people start in sort of year nine or even year eight some schools do um and so I was swimming a lot through sort of uh, year 9, 10, 11 um, or stopped sort of in year 11. Um, and that was the sort of each morning in the water um, and then a few gym sessions during the week. Um, and then sort of school came along where in year 10 you have to pick a, a summer sport. Um, and I, I was really engaged with swimming and wanted to do something that wouldn't add a whole heap of extra time commitments on top of what I was always already doing. And, uh, and so I chose uh, badminton. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, this is definitely not leading to, and then I decided to go rowing. So I went yeah. rowing, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, so I chose badminton uh, with one of my good friends um, as something that was a bit different, left a field that I could do um, and would enjoy and not necessarily have a whole heap of time that I'd have to add into it. And, I did that for a year and I, I always say I don't I can't recall exactly but I, I'm fairly sure that I didn't win a single point um, you get on the bus from Geelong and you go up to Melbourne each weekend and I just got absolutely smacked around the badminton court um, again and again and again had a great time training something different um, hanging out with friends and uh, after a year of that I think the rowing coach spotted me um, in the around the school grounds on his way to the gym one day. When you were missing the shuttlecock. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, he, I, saw, I think oh. he came up to me and said, I think you better come along and um, give rowing a shot. And they were sort of doing, you go along for the pre-season ergs and mm. sit on them and have a go. And I jumped on. And again, this is a little sort of hazy, but I think I did about a 6.45 or a 6.40 or something um, 
for my first ever like in year 10 yeah, yeah wow. um, time on the That's ergo nice. and after that i think he just said yeah you've got to come and do rowing that's enough mm. of the badminton obviously <laughs> <laughs> and so I, i've always been and you've been regretting that ever since <laughs> no well, i mean it's i was you sort of your coach says something so you to go and do something so you go and do it and so i mean he said that and i was like yeah sure i'll give that a shot i mean it seemed to have everything i loved it was on the water it was outdoors it was a great team sport um and so i went with it yeah right and so head of the river a couple of times in the first aid i think and I, that's when i first um became aware of you because i was the head coach at mercs at the time and um richard bartlett who was the development officer was like that's the kid but you got to watch him. He's the one. And I remember saying, "Right, oh, we, we better get him." But you came, you came to Mercantile with a, a horde of of characters as well. With um, <laughs> there was a couple of linkies, and there was Bolson, and a couple of guys, and there was some real characters in that group. Oh, and yeah, definitely. And uh, you went straight into the youth, the youth eight. I think the Victorian youth eight. Yep. Those first couple of years with wins there, and I guess that must have sort of given you a bit of belief around your capabilities as a as a rower to do something you know more significant yeah definitely i mean um as you said there are a few characters there and not just from college but from all schools and at mercs i think that was a really good group around that time that developed and and so you sort of have a lot of momentum from that and you're going along really enjoying what you're doing and you just naturally have success when you're in that state and um it does it, it draws you in um, and I, I d definitely did. I really enjoyed And looking back, I, I really benefited from a lot of what happened in that youth rowing. Um, yeah, I was, with Youth Cup and I was going to ask you about Olympics. that. Because it, it wasn't like you didn't go in and become a junior world champion and then go straight to the 23 team. Obviously, you made it the next year when you rode with, with Will Lockwood in the, in the pair. And I think you won the pair that year under 23s. Yeah, yeah. A, a national pair. Sure. Yeah. But... The, the first year or so, you know, I remember, you know, you had your share house and it was it was about sort of learning how to be an adult and have a bit of fun, I guess, wasn't it? It wasn't like this soaring leap into high-performance athleticism straight away, was it? Definitely not, definitely not. Um, but that was important for you, wasn't it? Like you yeah. needed... Uh, Absolutely. Um, and it was for me, that's the first year out of school... Uh, and that's another story that I like to tell is, is the first day at Merck's, that induction day that you were there. Um, and Who was your coach? Oh, uh, at school. No, when you first joined Merck's and the... Um, probably the squad was under... I mean, there were a lot of us who came in that year. I, I mean, I All think Simon, Simon was there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and coming in and, as I said, there were a lot of people there at the time... Um, and I am quite introverted and shy, and so I didn't really... Ha I had a lot of f friends at school through rowing, but I didn't at all know anyone from other schools, especially not in Melbourne. Um, and so showing up there with so many people was a bit overwhelming. And I think you had, like, four or five eights out on the water. Um, and so it was very easy to get... that people could potentially get missed. Um, but I, I really sort of enjoyed showing up, and I think the speech you gave was quite... Uh, inviting and so I jumped in and uh, the thing that I really remember is that the shoes and I mean that's something I've had throughout <laughs> my whole career is that the shoes never fit so I jumped in and there was a pair of shoes that rowing. were 10 sizes too small you that's something I've never tie. understood in rowing 
you don't have your own shoes. You just you're all happy to wear each other's shoes. It's that's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, exactly. Yeah. So with, for my size 15 feet, I didn't fit in. So I jumped in and sort of there were a lot of people there, and I was like, oh, I won't bother the coaches. I'll just figure this out. And so I velcroed. Um, undid the Velcro and just Velcroed over the top of my feet, <laughs> Velcroed my feet into the boat and went and had a row and had a great time and um, jumped out and I said, oh, those shoes are a bit small <laughs> and, um, and went from there and it was great. Um, and never had a pair of shoes that fit you since no. then. <laughs> I had to special request them and I think by the last year of my career I was probably getting those but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, was, it was a really, I, I thought it was out of that squad you know and a couple of really talented athletes came out both I think at at Merck's and at Melbourne Uni because you know there's quite a bit of cross pollination believe it or not back then there was I don't know whether it still is the case but there was a lot of combinations and you combine with Will Lockwood the next year in the under 23 pair and and that was really that set you on your way because you were in the eight that year in Ricicci I think and did you go was that the year that you went on from there to the yeah. senior worlds? Yeah, yeah. doubled up. Um, yeah, and and so as you sort of mentioned previously, like that was it was all rolling through um, and got into that uh, under twenty three eight. Went to Rachiche, had a great time. This is two thousand and nine, so first year of the London cycle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Rhett was the coach for yep. under twenty three coach. He'd come fresh off the um, Beijing gold medal, which was that was an experience, boy. <laughs> You heard about it every day. <laughs> yep, that was so. That was a real interesting one. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, but one interesting thing I always remember, like I don't know if you recall this, but you know the 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 eight they had overseas was called Bob, which, yep. as I understand, was Band of Brothers. Yeah, it was a really you had a thing though, didn't you? And and again, another instance I f- I feel like where the tight knit unit was really an important part of you know being successful for you. To, to get engaged and get excited by it. Is that fair, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I reckon it roped Will in too because I reckon Will was in the youth squad at Melbourne Uni and I remember he could have gone either way. You just didn't know whether he would be like ready to step up and I think after he rode with you that yeah. year, he came back so fit and it was like, right, <laughs> yeah, this is it. Yeah, definitely. And it, so it had definitely had its own momentum and inertia and I think like we really... Um, all got along well and probably Rhett coming hot off the Olympic Games really formed that into a strong nucleus. Um, he was a real character and we had a lot of sort of characters and I think him being so strong meant that we didn't pull ourselves apart and we all got in behind each other a bit as well. And there were definitely times when you get that fractious, people start to nip at each other in, a, in an eight, um, but I think he was pretty good at being the bull through the china shop smashing all those sort of out of the way yep. um, and so we had a great time and went to a chicha and then I think it was in the semi that I got a message that Dom Grimm had been had developed a stress fracture and so they'd asked me to come um, step up into the senior eight and come back to uh, come back to Canberra which going from European summer back into Canberra winter. <laughs> that is was, a rude shock. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, and it was it was a bit of a journey, even that little bit. Um, so I sort of had to make a big decision um, with this event looming over me, the final. And so uh, that was one of the real times where I got an opportunity really clearly in front of me and just said, you know what, I don't, don't know what this will bring, but I'll just go for it and just 
grabbed it and said, yep. And then, but for those few days, put it behind me and then focused on the final for the under 23 eight. Um, and then had the journey of flying back solo um, without the team and having planned a week sort of going to um, Berlin and travelling around Europe mm. with all the guys um, and ended up flying back solo and staying a night in Paris on my own, which was kind of out in the world for the first time. Yeah, you were still a pretty young kid then. Really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I've always, I've always really loved getting home. It's a bit of a side flying back into Tullamarine, into the airport and stepping out at 6am and it's freezing cold and just really fresh. Yeah. Um, Low humidity, yeah. Melbourne air. Exactly. Yeah. And you just feel really excited. So um, I think that was really a, re- a good journey for me to start sort of building that independence and um, feeling like I can sort of make my way. Um, but then landing sport. as an under-23 into the senior A camp, like pre-departure pretty much or right before they're getting ready to go that's a huge step yeah definitely you would have been in the lighty double that year wouldn't you so with 2009 with um yeah it was, bron? It was in, based in sydney with bron but i was mm. just reflecting i hadn't actually considered that but the year before in 2008 we'd been at the non-olympic worlds over in um, linz in austria and then i flew back and landed in the senior camp in penrith which was pre-departure for olympics mm. and as a young, you know, I don't know, 21 or something, never been on a senior team before, really. Um, and you sort of think, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I can empathise, like you just sort of yeah. land there and then you kind of got to work out wh- where's your place in it all. Well, the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> you just yeah. don't say anything. <laughs> just watch well, everyone. And so how did the, the rest of the crew welcome you in? Like, well, who is this young pup? Like, how did that go? We'd actually, I mean, it wasn't, I was lucky in that it wasn't a completely blind introduction. We'd been training in Canberra that year um, in tandem with the senior eight. And so we'd, there was already a lot of history and we That's were training good. in the same yeah, ergo cool. shed um, and often doing battle paddles beside each other. And there was a lot of chat going back and forth. And the typical big dogs and up-and-comers, underdogs, um, sort of battling back and forth. Um, and so we were resented because... The senior eight wanted to get... We were always nipping at their heels um, and chasing them around the lake. Uh, and I think that at times they definitely wanted to be able to go away and sort their sort of stuff out on their own, but we were just always there. Um, and so that was, I think, a bit how... One of the first times where I did get that, where I started to sort of see that physiology, and that was the first time mm. where I got... Um, I was doing some testing. Yeah. One, I, You sort of asked before we started... Um, and I might be jumping the gun here a little bit, but one of the first times I realised that f- sort of physiological edge that I had was one of the workouts we were doing was a phase phase and surge ergs. Oh, yeah, the, and f- I th- the surge and the phase, yep. Yeah, so... <laughs> How well we remember those. <laughs> Someone might have to explain those. But um, it was... I think it was during a phase um, and they'd set my watts and we were going through and I, I did the first um, set of them and was just like, this isn't doing anything, and then bumped my watts up for the second one. So what they pick your watts off, they just kind of randomly said, yeah, dude. Yeah, just yeah. I think threw them out there because that, that would have been one of the first, sort of the first few weeks of the, um, of the campaign, and so they just ballparked them. And for the second one, I bumped them up. I took the executive decision to bump my watts up a bit um, and because, of course, it's a bit of bravado as well. Everyone's in the ergo mm, room looking course. at each other. Yeah. There's mu- music going on. Um, 
<laughs> and so I bumped my WhatsApp a bit and I was like, oh, it's still not doing anything. And then bumped my WhatsApp again for the sort of the third part of it. And I think it was at that stage that Rhett came past and noticed that I was doing what's way over what I'd been set. And so I sort of, I think it was, I don't know whether I finished or whether it was halfway through, he started yelling at me for changing, for <laughs> changing my watts. He's like, you meant to sit on your watts. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, but they're not doing it. And so we had a bit of an argument around that. And so from then on, my watts went up a bit. Um, was this in Canberra, in that yeah. yoga room? Once he was standing in the ergo room and I was doing squats down the far, far end, so about 100 metres down the other end of the room. Not deep enough. <laughs> oh, mate. You're not deep enough. Yeah, he, uh, Rhett had an eye for every he detail. Did. It was incredible. He, I still he, remember. Nothing, he never missed anything. I think we could probably do it. He probably still episode. doesn't miss anything, yeah. <laughs> Just reminiscing on Rhett. We'll get Rhett, Rhett on one day. Rhett would coach you pouring a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, guarantee. A lot of enthusiasm. So... Uh, and that, that was one of the things we, we did ask about. At what, at what point did you recognise that you had a bit of an engine? Now, obviously, no one who, who does, who makes an under-23 team in their second year as a 19-year-old, whatever, can do that really without having some kind of engine. But there, there was some testing around that point in time where, you know, I, I think you might, might have realised, well, actually, there's a pretty significant underlying VO2 there. Do you, do you remember anything of that? Um, not specifically that. I mean, that might be because you tend to block all those te- the tests out and yeah, and you don't they never happen. You don't pay a lot them. of attention to those sort of things either, do you? No, I mean, definitely at that stage of my career, I'd, even more so. I mean, as you go on, you start to learn the value of some things like that, and they're a bit of a um, thing to sort of hold to when things get pretty tough. Um, but at that stage, I probably didn't know a lot of what the numbers meant. Um, it was just probably inconvenient to have this thing in your mouth while you're trying to do a bloody erg. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rod. E- everyone's looking at me. <laughs> really with looks on their face for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, it, it was good. It's, it's sort of like when you go to see the doctor and nothing's wrong with you, but they just feel your pulse and touch your forehead and you feel good. So it's like when people are sort of doing their job around you that it feels sort of relaxing and soothing um and so that was probably the main thing that i remember from it where Mm. um almost like just being a a piece of the machine um yeah okay and there are people second you just said that doing a vo2 max test felt relaxing and soothing (laughs) okay literally first time i've ever heard that (laughs) i guess for me it's where you don't have to make any decisions again they just tell you sit on this what this is what you do um and so it makes it really easy because, yeah, everything It hurts there for a bit, though. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that. <laughs> well, it's funny. Like, when we set up tests with some of the young athletes, we jokingly say, it's like, here are your watts. We put them up on the whiteboard. It's like, you do that, we'll do everything else. <laughs> and, well, yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> so no, it's, I always used it's to always think, a funny though, gag. oh, look, four minutes, four minutes, four minutes. That easy, easy, easy. You really, are, it's only 12 minutes of work. Because by the time you get to the top end, it's only three steps to go kind of thing. But then if you don't actually max out, you haven't done the job. Mm. <laughs> so I couldn't ever convince myself that it was only going to be 12 minutes of work. Yeah, that's true. So following that sort of, I guess, that step into the, to the senior A team, I, I guess the, the next and probably the, you know, what I would say from sort of standing close but on the outside is that you know the big step in your career which was joining the we'll call it the Cobber Drew gang 
in, in essence. And, and, you know, Chris O'Brien, who was the VIS head coach and one of the senior men's coaches on the national team, and obviously Drew Ginn. And they obviously had their eyes on you for, well, initially the pair, I think, at, one, at, at sort of 2011. They, they were really saying, oh, Jesus, yeah. this is a decent-looking pair, wasn't it? It was, it was a bit about that. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that was definitely, obviously, for selections and things, you jump into the pair initially. Um, and so coming back, I think that might have been a little bit for that. I mean, again, I was very young. And, I mean, they certainly would have been happy to let me in on all their discussions. Um, but I was probably just doing my thing yeah, going rolling along, um, as Pernie would say, rolling with the punches, um, and not necessarily taking all that in yet. Yeah, and what was it like when you, when when you sort of got when you realised, well, I'm going away in this four with you know someone who's done so much in the sport in terms of Drewy, but recognising that it was it was it wasn't going to be an easy ride. Like he was going to ride this thing to to its very conclusion was was there did that dawn on you at any stage was it exciting daunting like what what was that sort of yeah, like i mean that and that was probably I, I spoke about before um one of those little moments when an opportunity is really just sitting right in front of you and you can see it really clearly and that was probably the second big one where i was up in canberra um and drew had come back into the sport um and i Noel sort of took me aside and said they're looking for someone to go with Drew. Um, they've sort of asked if you'd like to go and do that. Um, and so that was another moment where I was like, okay, I've got to make sort of what could be a reasonably big decision pretty quickly um, and then get on with keeping training. Um, and so I did it and I just thought, again, I'll just jump at it. Uh, and I did. And at some point sort of in the next couple of days even, it was sort of that quick... Um, I was packing my tube room up into my car and driving from Canberra back to Melbourne. Um, and that was... So starting the drive and even up until sort of getting to the northern skirts of Melbourne, didn't know where I was staying. I, of course, had moved all my life up to Canberra and so I didn't have a place to stay. Um, didn't know where I'd be training, what the deal would be. Had never met Cobber or Drew. Um, and was driving into the city at about 11 o'clock at night, not knowing all this stuff in a beat-up old Civic. Um, and it was a really interesting moment. And then uh, I showed up at Michael Young's door, a friend of Drew's, and um, I got set his his uh, address, and it was like, you're staying here, this is where you're living. And so they just took me in and put me up for the next couple of years, and that was the start of sort of a great relationship there as well and a great journey for me. Um, so it was. I always see it as a really like you're just driving off into the unknown almost, um, mm. and again showing up late at night in the middle of the night, being like, okay, we'll see where this takes me. Um, yeah, definitely yeah, it's, interesting. It's pretty amazing. Isn't yeah, it? it's cool. And and I guess lifelong friendships that have come out of that as well with absolutely the Fitzyoungs yeah. and yeah, and you know obviously Drew and Drew and Cobber as well in yeah. in that sense. So, obviously, qualified the boat in um, 2011 with um, Sam Locke and uh, Perny, I think. Yep. Um, and that was in Bled. Yep. Yeah. And I remember that really well. Like, I, you know, I was there coaching at one of the other boats and we had a crew change and had to 
pull a rabbit out of a hat to quali- or to qualify and we got a medal and I remember you, you, know, you guys got got that medal and um, I think both bronzes and yeah because Cobra and I worked together really closely through the whole cycle and that was a really significant moment for me in that yeah. realization that we were going to get the chance really at that point to prepare two boats for the Olympics together through through the VIS and and then there was a little bit of a shift, obviously, that next year with the with the crew combinations. And Will Lockwood comes back in, um, and uh, with Chapo, James Chapman into the four. And and that I guess was a really full campaign, wasn't it? That was like a get. Once you selected, it was really, um, it was looking from selection all the way to the London Olympics with, you know, a view of popping up a couple of times to race at a few significant events but really it was it was all focused on that end race wasn't it yeah definitely and always looking back on that time it feels like there is about a decade in just what was really two or three years um it's really a year in every session yeah the amount of concentration (laughs) absolutely and meetings and yeah but i think that was probably a really good thing obviously that Drew and Cobber had going um, is that long-term outlook and really yeah. specific planning um, and targeted goals, uh, which, again, I was just a kid just having a great time um, going along with all that. Um, and there was definitely a lot, a lot of ground covered. I mm. mean, they, were, they built up my training... Um, massively through that period and so that was probably i mean that was the first where i really started to understand it would just be a lot of time staring at the back of drew's seat post on the bike um (laughs) getting sprayed with road grit and water and stuff um but again really enjoyable i mean i think that was perfect for me because it was uh you can't it's almost like in mario kart where you're just chasing Mm. the ghost so yeah. it's like you're just always chasing, always chasing, always chasing. Um, so that was perfect for me where I had sort of infinite room to grow into um, and wasn't really limited by anything. I didn't know any limits and then they were obviously a really well-drilled team. Um, As in Cobber and Cobber Drew. and Drew, yeah. I think it's so funny though because it's it seems like there's just so much between them there's so much work and I want to talk about coaching a minute because you brought it up a number of times but my memories of watching you guys in that period was you know you getting off the water and Cobra and Drew having a 90 minute discussion looking at the biomech between that and the second training session and 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 Drewy leaving and Cobra you know needing a, a cuddle sort of thing <laughs> and it was it was and it was always productive, but it was always pushing, wasn't it? And yeah, yeah. Definitely. I remember you talking about just being in the hole and just being happy to be in the hole yeah, through yeah. that period. And it was almost like you only popped your heads up out of the hole with a couple of days to go to race, yeah, as yeah, I recall. Definitely. Um, that was a very definite strategy uh, that we had that um, Drew and Cobber developed uh, where... I mean, I think it was the purpose was to get a big block of training done, a really big bulk of training, obviously to get Drew back into sort of rowing form after his foray going for sort of cycling and for me to build up as much as I possibly could as a young athlete um, to being able to sort of mix it with obviously the athlete that Drew was, is. Um, And so 
there were and then there were the few little racing just touch points um yeah, like were, the world cup here and was that one in Lucerne, I think the, the Brits might have broken the world record in the first heat and you guys were two seconds one. quicker in the 1,000 metre mark at the second one and I was standing next to Jürgen and he had a big <laughs> smile one moment and he was a little bit concerned the next. That was It was a pretty amazing season, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of fun. And again, there's that sort of that rivalry that came in um, and obviously a lot of people are looking at Drew and Cobb and they know a lot about them, but I'm a complete unknown. Um, and so we just had those few touch points throughout the season where we'd come in and we knew nothing about the combo. I mean, obviously they had a lot of data about Drew um, and were beginning to get some about me, but really very untested in terms of racing. Hmm. Um, and just getting those regattas and just seeing where we're at um, get some real data points to be very clinical about it and get back in the hole, um, <laughs> just really smash ourselves in terms of training um, and then pop up again and see how much things have moved. Mm. Um, it's an interesting 360, um, a full circle though, if you think about you know spending so much time in the tinny watching your mum an Olympic sailing squad and then finding it actually such an easy transition to jump in with Drew and Cobber and like read the play kind of thing and like not everyone actually could have done that job and certainly very few would have uh, added to that duo already. I think that that's probably come from a long history of, of understanding how that those kind of relationships all work. Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, that is goes back to what I said about having really good coaches around and, I mean, really good athletes as well, but I definitely had you just tend to absorb that when you're living in it, even as a three and a seven-year-old going through Olympic cycles, um, you absorb all that information subconsciously. And so it was a natural, it was a really natural fit for me to go back into that high performance. um, Taking feedback, contributing when it's your turn. Yeah. And, and sort of having that underlying understanding of what's expected. And I, I, I like, that would probably be one of the biggest things of, that I would put for working with Drew and Cobb was always just about that honesty. Um, it was really clear about where we were going and what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do that. Um, and so then the idea was, okay, we put all that out there really and we have 90-minute discussions about every word that we want to use after every session. Um, but, I mean, all that work, all that time, all that talking makes it really clear what you want to do and so then you set about doing it and you can be really it's not brutal because you're being really honest and everything out there and you see it um and so it's just sort of natural that you say okay well this has to move here and this has to go there um and it takes the ego out of it and really quickly develops that bond um and i mean i got on really well with drew i think we're our personalities sort of work together pretty well mm, yeah um and the same sort of with dunks uh when i got some opportunities to row with him as well um i think i don't know whether it's a typically australian thing that really relaxed sort of mm. um easygoing enjoyment uh and so I, I really found it easy to get into that and work with drew um and then 
go into the more, sort of more serious side of things and not be too anxious about things or stressed about it um, because I had that experience, underlying experience. And the interesting difference there is it's the, the intensity of the engagement versus just having to do a lot of stuff. Like it was obviously very engaging, wasn't it, when you talk about those 90-minute chats and yeah. and but even – you know, I remember, you know, Cobber keeping track of powers to speeds and, and trying to individualise that even right back then to try and help young, younger athletes believe in themselves while you've got the old, older guy who's trying to set a benchmark and keep throwing the benchmark a bit further out. And, and as you say, you, you guys just, well, you followed him, but I think obviously you pushed him very hard. Yeah, that's an interesting one as far as coaching goes. Quite often you can fall in the trap, I guess, if you've got two people. Uh, that you're coaching two athletes, one of them's well-seasoned and the other one's very young, then you kind of end up with one in your ear the whole time and, and the other one, then you can have a power imbalance between the athletes. So that's a skill. Cobb obviously managed that exceptionally well. Not accidentally either. No. I think it was very – there was a lot of deliberate thought that went into how to manage you guys to keep you in the hole until – you know, right to the very end. And I think it was, you know, people talk about tapers, you know, the 10-day taper and the this and the that. and 21-day, I, I think one year. You know, and I think you guys, essentially, you stopped the last heavy session, or was it definitely less than a week before the, the heat. It was it was right into the London, when we were in London. Yeah, the super taper. Mm, just the, the <laughs> how, drop taper. How long was that? Well, I think that was the one for Bled. Um, yeah. <laughs> where we, it was like... Three days, basically three days. last, well, full day of training, mm. complete day off, half day, and then I think pretty much you're in racing, so not full load, but you're still letting some intense sessions get back in. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that was, it, like, again, that long-term focus and being really specific with goals and what you want... Um, and not being afraid to be very experimental with it. I mean, as I said, mm. we sort of had those points where we go up and do some racing and see where it's at and then see where it's moved. Um, and going into it being like, we're just here to race. We don't know anything about how the personalities work under that really intense stress, but we're just going to focus on the physio, the race, focus on what we need to do there and we'll come in hard and see where it lands. Mm. And there was it was repetition-based training as well, wasn't it? It was eight-minute bits. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I get so confused. That was oh, yeah. probably the one thing I stuck. But this was Cobber's thing. He would find something that would work and then he would just go, We're just, uh, what are you doing today? Eight-minute pieces. And it would yeah. be yeah, like I've seen two Cobber's or three times a week. Pieces. Yeah. yeah. But it, I think that – and this would be something that I think a lot of listeners would be interested in because I think there's – Everyone's looking, Rod, for that magic, the magic mm. session. And the reality is the magic session is the one that the athletes are totally in, invested into and believe in. And you know, I worked you, out, I think, halfway through my career that it doesn't matter if it's eight minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, 50 minutes, whatever. It's like you just have to row hard. They're just <laughs> going to say some number of time and you just do it until they say stop. The belief <laughs> factor is huge. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's million ways to skin a cat and you know i've seen programs that i look at physiologically and go oh, i'm not sure if this one's great but the athletes are so bought into it and yeah. the coach and there's so much confidence around it and they eke every last little bit out of that training and they succeed yeah um, i think 
one of the things that not necessarily in that um, campaign that, as I said, I got really confused is that there'd be very slight variations in time, but same intensity. So it would be like seven and a half minutes and then eight minutes and then like 6.45 minutes. And, um, and so I was like looking at it like, let's just do, yeah, 10 minutes all the time. Like we're not, we're making things different here, but it's, there's no real difference. Mm. But I think what you sort of understand, learn is that that's a bit of personality type management sometimes, like when there's a lot of intricate things going on. So you're soothing some personalities because their mind has things that they're concentrating on and different activities going on um, and sort of details that are occupying them. Whereas when you actually probably look at it on the paper, it's just it's just the same thing. We just put slightly different numbers on the program sometimes. And so when you used to say those kind of things in your crew chats, did it extend the crew chat like another half an hour? <laughs> I didn't say things like that. <laughs> this is all upon reflection. And yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that <laughs> I want to <laughs> briefly touch on just for people to get a really good understanding of what goes into succeeding at, at the level that you, you manage to succeed at. It's you're training really hard for, what, 30 hours a week in, in your big weeks. 40 hours, yeah. For, in, including every every sort of aspect of that, gym and, you know, treatments and, all, you know, obviously all your rowing and frisbee, frisbee and warm-ups. <laughs> but then you're doing quite a lot of preparation from oh, a yeah. team-building point of view. Like, you know, you spoke about this is the language that we're going to use when we discuss things post-chat. So there's a lot that goes in before that. Then you're having those meetings post-rows post and you're having the planning meetings and you're having, you know, so much time. You know, it, it like if you're having a 40-hour week and then you're having that on top of that, like that's more than a, a normal work week. Oh, yeah. um, and so for, pe- you know, I think it's probably interesting for people to understand, you know, they, they watch you at the Olympics, you race for about, you know, six minutes and they assume you probably trained hard, but... Yeah, yeah. That's, there's a lot of work that goes in. Not every athlete, the though, could um, entertain that in a crew situation as well. You'd have some athletes that might say, look, we've done this to death. Uh, let's take our minds off it and come back. Whereas in a situation like this, you've got an athlete in Josh who understands, no, actually, the most important thing I can do here is sit and listen and um, let it all play out because this is important for the other guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, it is... So I think we had going into London, um, we counted like the hours and it was something like 42, like 40 to 42 hours um, wow. sort of a week. And that's, I mean, that's not even... I don't think that was including sort of like running to training or something or like walking down to the sheds in Brazy. Um, that's, yeah, so that's go time. That's like um, from when the session starts to when the session stops. Like that doesn't include washing the boats. So that's just time where your heart rate is elevated and you're under stress. Um, and then there is that again, sort of double for crew meetings, strategy meetings. I mean, physio, doctor. I, I always, for me, the biggest thing that would often happen under that sort of training volume is that eating just becomes a chore. Um, mm. I mean, I really had serious appetite loss. Um, and <laughs> So you're sitting down and you've got a massive plate of food because you just need to clear that volume so you don't break down. And it's just, it's so hard just to keep forcing it down your throat. <laughs> yeah. but, um, and so it is, there's a lot of work. And, and potentially sleep gets impacted as well. And so you're yeah, not sleeping well. And, and I mean, even if you are sleeping, sometimes you're just so exhausted that it's just complete like black sleep. Like it's not 
REM, it's not restful. It's just you're just dead. <laughs> you don't move. Yeah. yeah. Um, you just can't move anymore. But and it is. The, I mean, the the language is a really big part of it because there are time there are crews that I've been in where you maybe don't have the athlete knowledge or the coach knowledge to have some of those conversations ahead of time so that you do spend a lot of time just chasing your own ta tail trying to work out what people are saying and everyone thinks it's got said a lot on the same page um, mm. and everyone thinks they're on the same page but everyone has slightly different interpretations of words I mean one example I always use is, is fast what does fast mean is fast good is fast bad is are you racing fast are you getting through a race fast or are you being too fast are you rushing things are you um, uh, not taking the time to do things you need to do properly um, so and that's just one word and so if um, you have eight people in an eight who think all have eight different variations on fast then it can you can end up in very different places very quickly um, and so really while in at the time as a young athlete you're probably sitting there halfway through a 90 minute chat <laughs> after you've done a massive session and you're in your zooty and you're starting to get cold and smelly and you want some food and you're just going oh, what are we talking about <laughs> um a lot of stuff like that is was very important yeah absolutely i think we we talked a lot about this importance of specific language right and yeah performance language mm, yeah mm, might be a good podcast for down the track i think mm. and i guess josh you know to move along you know obviously london and then a different sort of cycle into the rio cycle moving through a, di a number of different combinations but you found yourself eventually in back in the four again um again with will um, but with Hilly and Boothy coming in, two pretty massive engines as well. Like, you know, physically a very capable boat, realistically. Um, and obviously Drew um, had a, a strong influence over a big part of that cycle too as, as a head coach for, for a chunk of it there. Um, any differences that stand out from your point of view between the way those two boats operated from a training point of view? Like dynamics or, or training focus um, I mean again I think it goes back to like this 8 minutes 6 minutes sort of thing like you're always training really hard and a lot of rowing weeks tend to end up looking very similar um, it's just sort of two rows in the morning maybe ergs in the arvo or weights um, the or same sort ride. of thing or a bike ride um, and so while some of the details might be different. A lot look. A lot is probably fundamentally quite similar. Um, Do you reckon there's any difference in the in the volume from the two cycles? Uh, and I don't know this, and, and you'll know a little bit, Rod. But I do know that London cycle. There was a lot of time on the bike. Yeah, yeah. You know, two or three times a week for five, six hours around Maggiore and and places like that. There's a lot of bike volume in that. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, I don't have specific numbers, so I couldn't tell you absolutely. Um, I would think that, again, they would look sort of fairly similar. Um, I don't think we did as much cycling. Yeah, you um, definitely didn't do yeah. as much cycling, yeah. Um, and I think probably what one of the biggest differences ended up being is just application. Um, 
for me, watching Drew train was just... I remember from the very first day I met him till the very last row we had together, um, it was always... He'd always find energy to be at 105%. Like, I never worked out where it came from and there was only one session I saw in all of the... It must be thousands of sessions, thousands and thousands of hours we'd trained together that I saw him without that energy. And that was one day we rode up Campo in um, oh. Italy and I beat him to the top. <laughs> and I, no other session I've ever beat him. And this time I got to the top of Campo before he did and he looked absolutely shagged. And I loved it. <laughs> it was just vindication. As I said, so many times looking, staring at his seat post and getting sprayed with dirt and grit. And this one, just one day that I beat him was fantastic. Uh, the interesting thing, and as I said, I actually caught up with Drew last week for something totally different. And, you know... He knew that we, you, we were having a chat, and it's just obvious the huge respect that he had for you and and for your crew, but but for you as an athlete, not not just for what you had as an underlying athlete, but for what you got out of yourself through that campaign. I think just the, I guess the blood, sweat, and tears that that came through that. But I, I do I do have that sense that that there was a lot of volume in that year or two, that much of which was bike volume as well, that potentially actually served you for quite some time you know I think if we look back at um the the type of training volumes that Drew did when he was a kid that that um even James Tompkins managed when he was young compared to what he did when he was a senior athlete senior in the most <laughs> senior term <laughs> um you know you could do you end up being able to do um less but you you never you can never get to do that if you haven't laid in that that yeah, volume yeah. at some point in, in early in your career and you were a young athlete that time right your body was probably primed and ready to take that on yeah yeah I definitely um I mean I really missed cycling we always considered it cheating like you just can't do anything else for that duration of time at that sort of exertion and not end up with serious injuries or I mean you couldn't run even rowing yeah. You end up with blisters and all sorts of sores. And, um, and was that potentially to help with Drew's back? Doing, because you couldn't do as much rowing. So if you compare the, the Rio campaign where you guys did more rowing, was that part of it? Yeah, definitely. I think it was probably to help the um, physical sort of for Drew a bit. But I think also a lot of it was probably just his pre like preference. preference. I think he yeah. really enjoyed cycling. Yeah. So we did a lot of cycling. Um, and... I mean, I really enjoyed it as well because, again, you're getting a lot of scenery and... Um, it's you good when you're in northern Italy. Yeah, yeah I was yeah, going to say, it's, not, it's a pretty good life when you get to ride around We had some Italy, really yeah. fantastic experiences. Um, I mean, one of, them, one of the greatest ones I had was uh, the day Cadell won the tour and we went out cycling around Italy and um, the, we met halfway through some crazy Italian guy who was wearing full, like, Australian flag kit... Um, didn't speak a word of English, but we were wearing some Aussie gear and so he sort of recognised us and rode with us for a bit and um, that was fantastic. And then probably, I mean, a really enjoyable ride we did was when we spent some time in Mwilumbar, um, 
and we'd gone riding through the hinterlands and Drew had picked out a ride um, on the map and he was looking at the map and realised that for part of it the road turned a different colour like it went from sort of I guess a red to like a yellow <laughs> and we didn't know what that meant but we found out when we got to the start of that that it turned the road went from paved to just loose gravel yeah. up a hill um, and so we had to do I think it was like a 20 or 30k stretch on gravel up a hill through the hinterlands of sort of northern New South Wales um, and so that slowed us down a lot. And so we got back to our accommodation a lot later than we were expecting, um, by which time it had started, it was sort of like 9, 30, 10. It had gotten dark. We were in, again, the back sort of roads of a fairly rural area, so there weren't many um, streetlights. And it had like it was starting to rain, and it was Queensland rain, so it was heavy, um, <laughs> and the visibility was really low. And we were punching along at sort of 40, 45, trying to get home before the worst of it hit. And so all I could see was Drew's rear wheel and a spot of ground road underneath, which was about sort of two foot in diameter. And I just remember seeing giant potholes from the poorly <laughs> maintained roads full of water. <laughs> just flash by inches to either side of my wheel and going, I'm glad I didn't hit that. <laughs> <laughs> and Drew was yahooing or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we, we sort of did a few sprints at the end there and you get pretty emotion, like pretty yeah. emotional and fired up. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, those are the real experiences that you get um, when you spend that much time together and, yeah. um, and you're just all shagged and who knows where your mind goes. And, and that's the nature of campaigning, isn't it? Like, it, it, in the truest sense, that's having a team where it's actually it's type two fun the whole time, basically. Yeah. And it's great to reflect on now, but it, you know, but at, at the time, it, it was like very. It was a very significant yardstick, I, I feel, in terms of the amount of work and you know how you guys set it, set that up to push. And like Drew's deeply philosophical about that stuff, so he would have absolutely loved the fact that it was you know mentally on the edge session, like um you know because it was for such an important campaign and um it was a pretty significant psychological moment. I remember he always used to say that thing, you're like, how good is water when you're thirsty? Because (laughs) water when you're not thirsty is so boring, but when you're thirsty, it is the most important, amazing, incredible thing. Um, and so it was all about with the context of something so you know if I rode my bike tomorrow in the rain in potholes I'd probably hate it but because of the experience of you guys building up towards a pretty incredible you know goal and yeah. that time of night and where you were like you would have it contextually thought that that was great so catalyzes something yeah else. it does yeah, yeah. um probably unlike any athlete that I think I've known you you seem to thrive in the campaign mode more more than any do do you think that's fair yeah definitely um i think again it has sort of what i really enjoy you with a team of people who you really build a very strong relationship with um and you get to travel uh you get to see some beautiful places um you get really clear goals um yeah so it's it is very enjoyable um i mean it's the Peter Pan sort of experience uh, yeah. that you joke about as a role where um, you get to have a lot of fun and stay up past your bedtime and you never have to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering on, on that then, like 
campaigning, I guess, you know, training to a fruition, what what were you like as a competitor in the competitive space, like on a, on the start line? Like, you know, what got you ready for that? Was it just the belief in the boat or, you know, how, how did you feel in that space? Um, good. I think that changed a lot throughout my various sports and through as I uh, – reached the age I am now when I was young I really and I'm sort of 10 to 16 I really didn't have any competitive drive um I there were a lot of swimming races where I'd lose count and swim an extra lap um (laughs) (laughs) it's hard you know that you're in 25 meter pool 50 meter pool long short um but so and I just would be daydreaming swimming along and and turn around and oh, everyone's already finished. Um, <laughs> so I, didn't I totally really, believe that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I really didn't have much competitive drive. Um, I mean, like I'd, I'd want to win. I'd want if I played like if when I was playing hockey, I'd definitely want to compete well and have a good game and um, and always be trying to win. But never really specifically would set out to do that at all cost or. Mm. Um, as a first choice. Um, as I sort of was rowing, um, I think it was always started competing against myself. Um, I always wanted to outdo what I'd done previously or I wanted to see yeah. where I could go. Um, I think as I got on um, and probably had done that training and started to understand myself a bit more and believe myself and sort of see that I could potentially get to the top... Um, it was always about trying to see what everyone else could bring. Um, and I think that's something I really learnt from Drew is that you sort of you put everything you have out there and you just say, this is what we got, show us what you got. And it's really simple, really pure. And so that was what I really loved about the competition, I think. Um, cool. It's just putting everything on the table. Mm. Um, Seeing what you can make of it. Yeah. Yeah. I always had that sense that it wasn't you weren't looking across at the 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 crew next to you and spitting and <laughs> and and desperately trying to scrap to, to beat that mob, but it was it was more about what was happening inside your your gunnels. Yeah. We're gonna have a quick break in a moment, but just following twenty sixteen, um, you know, second silver medal, um, you know, really enormously significant performance again really close again um and then you decide to take a break um for that next year and and i often think about you know i've actually dealt with a number of athletes that have taken a year off and i I feel like the the amount of work you put into that year off was pretty significant to try and keep yourself going between yourself and, and josh from your point of view what was the what was the idea there that year um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just that being in Australia, um, rowing seasons tend to back back up um, and especially with Olympic campaigns, you go straight from one Olympic campaign into pre-season for the first year of the four-year cycle and then it's head down into the hole sort of for four years straight. Um, and so I really uh, needed just a break from that, something to refresh um, some time to check in with other parts of my life um to candy's here with us yeah to get and to that was life. significant though wasn't it it was yeah yeah absolutely you know she'd she'd been 
a devoted supporter for many years and, and you wanted to give some time back to, the, to, to you guys and yeah, you know, grow definitely. that a bit. She made me talk on the telephone to her, which <laughs> as an introvert I am allergic to. Um, so I wanted to um, explore parts of, those, yeah, parts of my life that I hadn't um, and just change things up, I think, mainly. But critically, you didn't want to let go of your physical capabilities. You wanted to keep that ticking over. And you found, I guess, an opportunity with Boothie to kind of make that happen in a sense um, for a, a year, in inverted commas, a year off. And it was quite a different kind of... Um, it, was a, it must have been a stark difference to what you and Boothie had just come off in terms of that massive intensity and, and volume of training into something that was quite significantly different to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for both of us it was a chance to probably do more what we wanted to do again. Um, I think potentially going into Rio a little bit, we, I mean, I can speak for myself, um, but I suspect that Boothie may have been a bit the same where uh, f- a few years things probably felt like they'd been taken out of our control a little bit. Um, and while the results were still good and we certainly enjoyed mm. what we were doing, it wasn't necessarily the way we might have done things. Yeah, because the selection was up and down and it was you were moving in between boats and it was stressful, wasn't it? Yeah, it yeah, wasn't absolutely. particularly fun and you ended up in a good place with a, a crew you obviously believed in and I think all of us back at home were like, you know, thank God that's actually settled, but it didn't, it didn't go as smoothly as yeah, it might yeah. have. Yeah, definitely. Um, and sometimes like you go through that adversity and you reach that place um but i think definitely it's it's almost more stressful than or uh than the physical stress sometimes of just training yeah um going through those selection periods are some of the hardest that you face as an athlete uh even more so sometimes than actual competition yeah um just the uncertainty for extended periods of time, um, the physical sort of load, because it is quite high. You're always racing for your seat. Um, so it really takes it out of you. And, it, yeah, just wanting to get away from that, wanting to be able to sort of take our own course again, um, I think was a big part of that year yeah. in terms of the training we did. Yeah. And, you know, because I know, like, people will be interested to know, you know, once... You'd had, I think, two or three months sort of away doing general stuff and you started rowing with Josh in the pair. I remember sitting down and work because Josh was a medical student, um, Josh Booth, that is. Um, the cyborg. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember it was three rows through the week to start with and then two rows on a Saturday and a row on Sunday and the rest was, you know, there was – you were doing at one stage like f- – four to five gym sessions and we were actually trying to do yeah for the first time in your adult life like a really big strength block a really significant strength block and and um boothie was turning up at 7 p.m from royal melbourne when i was trying to close the gym to to get his stuff done um but it it was it was like that wasn't it it was very individually targeted and i think if there was in many weeks we might have only rode four times yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes less. Um, so I think it was very much almost the opposite of what um, had, it had been with Drew and Cobb where um, 
I mean, that was on tour and everything with the team. And so there was a, you're just always nearby each other and always interacting. Mm. And we were probably a little bit passing in the night sometimes, um, sort of high-fiving as I'm on the way out of the gym and he's on the way in. Uh, and obviously that was where we're both trying to get things done in our life that were yeah. very different. Um, but coming together to train and really enjoying that and then also being able to do the other things we wanted to do was really important for that year. Yeah. Great. Well, we, we're going to take a quick break now for a moment and then we're going to talk about the, that season and specifically because we want to talk about the, the ergo prep and the, and the lead into that. So we'll give you a chance to have a quick breather. It's been a really interesting and an honest chat so far, JDS um, and team. So and you're going to put this is part one. This is part one, that's and the, correct. the listeners will get part two. And the listeners will get part two in a minute. Coming up next time on Doc Doc Goose. Well, what you actually said was the extra couple of hundred Ks on yeah. a bike just, to, just as extras. So most people aren't doing that as a whole training week. That was just the extras. Yeah. Seeing Rod, gone over to speak to him about uh, the workout work out what I should be sitting on and I'd sort of just ballparked a figure in my head come up with something that based on sort of I think the work I'd been doing previously that week and sort of leading up to that felt about right Uh, and I can't remember whether it was you or I who said it first but I I think I came up and said something along the lines of I think if I sit on about 131 that feels about right and I think a thousand meters to go Bill comes up to me and he's like he's going to break the world record when did it when did it occur to you that you thought you might have a crack at the 2k you know, because yeah. you know, Rob Waddell had set that in 2008, I think, and um, it, had, it, it was almost like a, a thing stamped out in stone, that number. You know, based on Josh's physiology and what he had, what room did he have to grow to get to that mark to be able to do over 590 watts for five and a half minutes? Once I started crunching the numbers, it became pretty apparent to me, I actually reckon that he could do this. I would never have probably spoken that out loud until you suggested something like that. Throughout my career, all my 2K tests, uh, I've always just focused on a couple seconds. Um, Each time it's just a couple seconds, a couple seconds. There's going to be some curve where that ultimately tapers out, where you can no longer get those those gains. It was right up towards 40 strokes a minute the whole way down the course in that race. And then at Henley as well, I think we were right up there. and you, I think Boothie felt like he let it settle for a moment and that's when the French yeah. got away from you and, and we kind of kicked ourselves afterwards because we felt like you could have probably held it and maybe Yeah, yeah definitely. I, the thing I remember is that we were quite nervous being that night because that's just not something we used to be to doing. It was uncharted territory. Really hard, really hard ergo sessions. I think you were doing eight times a 1,000 metres at, you know close to 500 watt yeah. sort of thing and your lactate at the end would be six because <laughs> i yeah. definitely remember at the start of that i really had a lot of doubt about what you was going did, on yes. yeah because it was just so counter to everything that had been ingrained into me and trained into me about what you do on the machine or in terms of rowing in general i was definitely a convert by the end of it i guess you get a chip on your shoulder when people tell you oh you can only do this or you can only do that it did give me a lot of uh belief 
in that other aspect of what I could do um, and set up what I was able to ultimately achieve. Yeah, you lactate at the end of the first one, 6.3, end of the second one, 8.8, end of the third set, 11.2. very guilty when like I'm doing an ergo, particularly <laughs> next to Boothie who falls off afterwards. Again, slobbering. Someone else slobbering. has to take his shoes off for yeah. him. And the amount of times I've taken Boothie's shoes off. <laughs> and he's almost spitting out pure lactate and crying it out and just... <laughs> and I get off and walk around and say, you're right, buddy. Yeah. For the first 60 seconds, you 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 average 50 watts more than what we would have wanted. I said having developed that in 2017, I was really able to bring it with me through the high volume stuff um, and be a significantly different athlete, I think, than I had been at that time in other uh, in other campaigns. And a lot of the other guys came in and sort of congratulated me when they heard. And to have them all come through and see was, like again, it's a group sort of thing. At about the 800 metre mark, I knew that I could do it. 